one of the ironies of life is that oftentimes uh, when we feel the very most secure and we are the very most immensely blessed, we find ourselves, oddly enough, vulnerable uh, to some of the devil's best work. Uh, Satan is uh, many things, but uh, he's not stupid. And he knows how and when to attack us. A case in point we find this evening in uh, the book of 1 Corinthians and chapter 10. If you'll turn there with me, please, we'll read together the first several verses of 1 Corinthians and the 10th chapter. And we find some people who are very well and widely blessed, and yet uh, it turns out for them not so well because of Satan's work in their lives. Paul says, moreover, brethren, I do not want you to be unaware that all our fathers were under the cloud, all passed through the sea, all were baptized into Moses in the cloud and in the sea, all ate the same spiritual food, and all drank the same spiritual drink. For they drank of that spiritual rock that followed them, and that rock was Christ. But with most of them, God was not well pleased, for their bodies were scattered in the wilderness. Now these things became our examples to the intent that we should not lust after evil things as they also lusted, and do not become idolaters as they, as some of them were. As it is written, the people sat down to eat and drink and rose up to play. Nor let us commit sexual immorality as some of them did, and in one day 23,000 fell. Nor let us tempt Christ as some of them also tempted and were destroyed by serpents. Nor complain as some of them also complained and were destroyed by the destroyer. Now all these things happened to them as examples, and they were written for our admonition upon whom the ends of the ages have come. Therefore, let him who thinks he stands take heed lest he fall. No temptation has overtaken you except such as is common to man, but God is faithful, who will not allow you to be tempted beyond what you are able, but with the temptation will also make the way of escape that you may be able to bear it. Now, Paul draws our attention back to the book of Exodus and portions of Numbers dealing with the uh, Israelite people as they are being delivered from Egyptian bondage. Uh, generation after generation, and hundreds of years have passed now, uh, between the time when Joseph brings over his brothers and his father Jacob to live with him there in Egypt, a time comes when the people don't know, and especially the king, the Pharaoh, does not know or remember uh, Joseph and uh, the people who were treated as guests are now subverted as slaves. They've reached a number, some scholars believe, of upwards of one to two million people. And uh, you might recall the birth story of Moses his early years in the uh, courtyards of Pharaoh because of God's intervention and God's wonderful providence in his life. 
And at the age of 40, he flees that country for his life and spends the next 40 years in Midian. But then the story comes to the place we're at this evening in 1 Corinthians 10 when he goes back and after the 10 plagues have come and gone and Pharaoh's heart has been softened and hardened and softened and hardened and finally he allows the people to leave and then still chases after them with his armies. Pharaoh's armies are destroyed in the same waters through whom the people of God, the Israelites, pass safely. And now on Canaan's side, the promised land side of the Red Sea, with the land of promise just shortly ahead of them, it would seem, at least on the map, they have everything going for them. They had been slaves, now they're free. Uh, their lives had not been their own, now they are. They had no hope, now they do. They weren't a real people, now they will be. Uh, they didn't have a leader, now they have Moses. And they have God, especially they have what God has provided for them. Uh, they've seen and wondered at the plagues. Uh, they've been on awe of what happened with the death of the firstborn. They've witnessed the parting of the waters of the sea. And they've seen that very water come down upon the Egyptian army and seen Pharaoh's armies destroyed by the same waters that had saved them. After seeing all of that, though, the next 40 years are a troubled and ugly time for the people of God and that one by one they die off because God is, is frustrated with their unbelief, as the writer of Hebrews puts it. The writer of Hebrews says, they, these Israelites, entered not into their rest because of unbelief. It was a faithlessness revealed in so many different ways. Uh, some described here. Idolatry, uh, sexual immorality, testing, tempting God, grumbling, complaining. All of this showing their true colors of faithlessness. But all of these things come to them at a time when they are so, so richly blessed. Oh yes, there are always things to complain about. And if you're a complainer, you'll always be looking for and finding things that are wrong. But considering where they'd come from and the way they'd lived the last several generations of their people's history, they were a people greatly blessed. In fact, you'll be hard-pressed to find a song of celebration more excitedly joyous than that song of Moses in Exodus chapter 15. And now the Egyptian army is vanquished. They're on the Freedom side of the Red Sea, all is ahead of them in terms of blessing and provision and hope. And yet that soon turns to sin and rebellion and grumbling and backbiting. And those people, the entire generation of them, with the lone exception of Joshua and Caleb, die there and their carcasses are found left in the wilderness, as described in the text we just read. And that in spite of the fact that God had done so much, they'd seen it. God had provided so much, they had experienced it. God had given so much, and they had lived it. And yet, Satan comes in. And you have to know Satan is bound to every wrong thing that happens, every temptation that comes is not from God. It is from Satan working against us with our own desires against us. 
We know his devices. We're not uh, ignorant of them, as Paul says. We know as a roaring lion, he goes about seeking whom he may devour, as Peter puts it in 1 Peter chapter 5. Uh, we know Satan is, is always looking for a, an end, an opportunity, and here it is with these people. And because of his temptation and their succumbing to it, in the midst of all these blessings, they, they waste it all, at least in this generation. They could have gone in a generation earlier to be victors in Canaan, but they didn't because of unbelief. They could have, as a generation, enjoyed the blessings of Canaan, but they didn't because of their unbelief. And Paul's point here is not just to bring up a matter of interesting history. He wants history not to repeat itself in his time, and even all these years later, we don't want history repeating itself in our time. And that's why Paul uses some of the uh, language he does. Uh, words like baptized and spiritual food and spiritual drink. And, and then saying that rock that followed them and that rock was Christ. And now some have suggested the fact that, well, you can find uh, glimpses and, and uh, hints of the second member of the Godhead in portions of the Old Testament. He's surely there because he is before all things and by him all things consist. He didn't begin as a person with his birth to Mary. And so this is referring to something literal in the sense that the second member of the Godhead was somehow in this rock from which they drank. If that's the road you're going down, it's an interesting journey, but it's taking you in the wrong direction. Because that's not the point the writer's trying to make. He's using words like baptized and spiritual food and spiritual drink. And that rock was Christ to show us that we have the same situation now they had then. God has provided everything for us now for our soul salvation. He did for them then in the salvation of their people, their lives, their freedom. And it is a matter of some interest to see the parallels and the correlation between them then and those later, us today even later still. They were in bondage to Pharaoh. We have been in bondage to Satan, to sin, to self. Made free, not by their own efforts, but by God's grace. By grace, we've been saved. God did something for them they couldn't do for themselves. God does something for us in salvation we couldn't do for ourselves. They were freed from that bondage. We've been made free from sin by what Christ has done for us. And in the process of that, they, they passed through the waters of the Red Sea. As it were, by baptism, they are immersed, overwhelmed, overcome, surrounded by the waters through which they go for salvation from the armies of Pharaoh. And just so, we go through the waters of baptism. In this same book of 1 Corinthians, Paul has said we're all by one spirit baptized into one body. And so we come into a place of freedom 
as it culminates in our being baptized, having sins washed away, and now we're free from sin. And what sustained them as they now are on the salvation side of the Red Sea? Well, God provided for them. God gave them a quail on at least two occasions, manna on a regular basis, water from the rock. He gave them food and drink to sustain their lives for this entire period. They might have said, they did say they wanted something else, something different, something more. Their own words, we loathe this light bread, they said. But God gave them everything they needed. And those of us saved from sin on heaven's side of the waters of baptism, everything we need, God has supplied for us. Our spiritual food, our spiritual drink is found in one place and one place alone in Jesus Christ. As Paul will say in Colossians chapter 2, you are complete in him. It was true then, it's true today. And so to use the language of New Testament ideas and implanting them in Old Testament examples, they're now baptized in the water as we're baptized in water. They have the rock from which they drink, which is Christ, because all of our blessings come from and in Christ Jesus. And just as they, with all of that, threw it all away because Satan tempted them from their abundance of blessings, so we can be vulnerable today with all of our blessings as Satan tempts us in the abundance of those things God has blessed us with. And to wrap this all up, Paul makes the point, to him who thinks he stands... Well, that's a dangerous place to be in. You might say, well, I don't want to be on my back, and I don't want to be down for the count. I want to be up and fighting. Well, if you're standing, be careful. Because you think you stand, take heed lest you fall. Because there's a certain arrogance, a certain pride, a certain, a certain unhealthy arrogance and pride. In believing somehow you don't need the Lord anymore. You can do it by yourself. Or somehow he's not necessary in your life. As, as you know he must be. In their case. Uh, their sins came from temptations. Along the lines of idolatry. And uh, fornication. And tempting. Testing God. And, and grumbling. And you can just read through the book of Exodus after chapter 15 forward through much of the book of Numbers and find story after story. Paul mentions a few of them by name and number here. But they all come because in spite of their blessings, they, they don't focus on the blessings. In spite of what God's provided, they, they didn't focus on those provisions. Instead, they from this luxury of God's blessings, look elsewhere. Now, it's not mentioned here, but it could have been the golden calf episode. They look elsewhere. They're impatient. They think they don't need God, or God doesn't care for them. And so, those who think they stand, take heed, lest you fall. Now, all these things mentioned by way of their sins, they still crop up even in 
the church of our Lord today. Idolatry, worshiping, putting first those things that ought not be in place at all in the place of the God of heaven. Fornication, immorality, well, the world is rampant with it. The church is rampant with it in many places, in many homes. Testing, tempting God, sometimes the way we live, the way we talk, suggests that very wrong way of thinking. And, and then for just a minute, stay with me with this next one. We see it as such a small, insignificant, benign almost quirk of our personalities. They complained. Uh, the old King James says, murmur not as they murmured. They weren't destroyed of the destroyer. Uh, well, complaining perhaps is a better word because we use it more often and know what it means. They were grumblers, they were whiners, they were complainers, and yes, they were murmurers. We loathe this light bread. Years and years later, after the time of the captivity and the time of the wilderness, the time of the conquest of Canaan, the time of the judges, the time of the kings, the time of the divided kingdoms, the time of the bondage, and then the time of coming back from captivity toward the end of the New Testament. You have the last book of Malachi written a hundred years after the people of God come back from their captivity, and they're already back at it again. They're offering their lame and their blemished as sacrifice to God, and, and they're saying in the midst of all of that, oh, what a weariness it is. Still complaining. It's odd that those who have the most complain the most. And oftentimes those with the least are the most appreciative for the little they have. It's a strange turn of events. But you see it so often. Someone that seems to have so little and so much they should be complaining about. And instead with a cheerful, optimistic, faith-filled heart, they're thankful for the little they have. And yet someone in the lap of luxury complains because they haven't got what the neighbor has or what they wanted for Christmas. Well, it just shows you the history repeats itself. From then to later to Paul's day, till now. And I know if all of that seems negative and a bit down in the tooth and down in the mouth for the beginning of the year, I'll remind you of the positive note that this ends with. If you're tempted like that, just know you're not by yourself. There's no temptation that's the fall on you that's not common to man. If you're tempted like that, uh, they were tempted before in Moses' day. They were tempted before Moses' day in the same ways. They've been tempted ever since in ways like this. You're not unique in your temptation. It's common. But God gives us hope. And that he promises us within the very temptations we face, there's always an escape route. There's always a way out. I know some make a big thing about the fact this passage does not say, the 13th verse, that we're, we're never given more than we can handle. Well, I realize that's making the verse say something it's not meant to say. 
But sometimes in making that point, we miss the point that is being made. The point that is being made is there's always a way out of temptation. Nobody can say when they are succumbing to and embroiled in their temptations, it's not my fault. They can't say, as Flip Wilson used to say years ago, the devil made me do it. They have to say, it's because I was overwhelmed, overcome by my own desires and lust, and I, I chose to do what I did. And we always have that choice. There's always a way of escape. Most times, no. Sometimes, no. Always, yes. That's exactly what the verse tells us. Which, looking back on the Israelites, tells us that what happened to them didn't have to happen to them that way. It wasn't preordained. It wasn't set in stone by God's decree. I don't begin to understand all the nuances of God's foreknowledge and all that might mean in terms of our behavior. Uh, much of that, most of that, almost all of that's over my head. But I do know this. We always have a choice. Because the Bible teaches it. Its examples show it to us. And we live it out day by day. We have a choice. They did. They chose poorly. And suffered because of it. In spite of their blessings. And wouldn't we be safe to say that we have so much more than they did? I've been looking at their situation. Wouldn't we might have been tempted to grumble if I told you, you know what, the next 40 years, and you might say, well, I haven't got 40 years left in me. And we say, okay, we're going to give you 40 more years. But for that next 40 years, you're going to have nothing to eat but, but, but manna. And you say, what is it? I say, yeah, that's it. That's its name. Manna means, what is it? What is it? Eh, well, that's what it is. Every day, breakfast, manna, lunch, manna, dinner, manna, midnight stack, manna. Next day, next week, next month, next year, Christmas dinner, manna, Thanksgiving feast, manna. Well, at least you can wash it down with some Coke Zero. No, you have water. And be thankful to have it. One year, two years, 10 years, 20 years, 40 years, nothing but manna and water. We'll throw in a couple times a quail. Uh, yes, I'm, I think I probably would have been with the complainers too. But those of us living now, our blessings aren't like that. We have all spiritual blessings in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus, Ephesians 1, verse 3. We have a mystery that one time was concealed, but now is revealed and obvious and clear to all of us in New Testament gospel scripture. We have blessings we can't even name, so much so we have exceeding great and precious promises, as Peter puts it in 2 Peter chapter 1. We have the very hope of heaven itself, not just a, a land of Canaan. We have the hope of being with God in heaven forever. A place where there are no tears and no death and no pain and no sorrow, where these things are, are no more. We have every blessing imaginable. And yet, 
we may complain more with our abundance than they complain from their lack. And they had all they needed. We have more than we need. The point is, just because you're blessed does not mean you live that way. And because we are, we should live that way. As thankful, obedient, submissive Christians who every day wake up giving the Lord thanks for everything we have. Who all through the day thank the Lord for everything he gives. And as nightfall comes, continues in thanking the Lord for everything he's provided. Because we have so much, should we do anything less? To him who stands, take heed, lest he fall. Well, more could be said, but that's enough for this evening. And so I'll leave the lesson with you. Uh, perhaps you're with us tonight and outside of Christ or in need of coming back to him. Uh, Christ is the place for blessing. The Lord is the place for forgiveness. If you need to come, come now as together we sing.